Today I'd like to talk about social rights. Social rights are those to healthcare, education, housing, social security, and a few others. These are internationally recognized in law and also in principle here. They're particularly important now, however. We're in a period of constitutional reform in this country where the government, the Labour Party, and the Joint Committee on Human Rights have both independently proposed putting social rights into the Constitution. We're in a period of European integration and constitutional reform with social rights in the EU Charter of Rights. It's a period of financial upheaval where social security plays a more important role, a period where baby boomers are passing into increasingly lengthy retirement, where pensions and health-related resource scarcity are going to become both more important and more onerous. So social rights are relevant, and today I want to answer three important questions about them. First, are social rights important enough to be called human rights? And if so, why are they so relatively new and sexy sounding? I think they're sexy. <laughs> Second, if they are human rights, should courts enforce them, and how? And third, if we're going to do so in a way that doesn't allow courts to overhaul the welfare system, what change will it make? And are these of any value? The topic of judicial politics is the theme that runs through these questions in the following way. If social rights aren't human rights, and if we don't know what judges will do, and if the changes might be negative, we're giving judges license to engage in politics that can bring illegitimate and negative change. But I think this charge is mislaid. Social rights should be made part of the Constitution. They are human rights. We can have a relatively clear answer to our concerns about institutional competence, and the changes would be real and beneficial. So let me start with the claim that social rights are human rights. The standard historical claim about the origins of human rights is that social rights arose as a 19th century second generation of rights claim after the more natural rights-based civil and political rights of the 18th century American and French revolutions. Some treated this chronology as setting out the order of importance for these rights, but that would be completely false. Satisfaction of basic survival needs is, of course, everyone's first interest. And some, pays John Rawls, might very plausibly choose economic and social stability over political liberty. Have you ever seen Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs and human motivation? Ever lived in a post-conflict society? There's much in both to suggest that, if anything, social needs come first. So why then were civil and political rights the first to arise in fact? Whatever their philosophical merits, the contents of charters of rights will often reflect the interests of those in power. This is true of the Magna Carta of 1215 in this country, which concerned mainly the power of barons against King John. It gave rights to freemen only, which included about 10% of the peasant population. It was also true of the Bill of Rights of 1689, also of this country, a settlement in favor of Parliament against the monarch at a time when a property qualification existed in order to be represented in the commons, and one that was actually strengthened in 1710. And although there was a brief flirtation with universal male suffrage in France in 1792 and 1848, the property qualification remained for the most part through the French and American revolutions, to say nothing of the fact that women were entirely left out of the picture and slavery was kept legal in both nations. Now, if political declarations of rights track the interests of those in or asserting power, the obvious question here is, when did the people come to power? The answer in this country is to be found in the Great Reform Acts of the 19th and 20th century. The Great Reform Act of 1832 was considered a great leap forward for democracy here. But it's still, on account of the requirement to hold property of a value of greater than 10 pounds, 
only allowed one in six adult men and no women to vote for representation in the Commons. The next Reform Act of 1867 allowed two out of five males to vote, and the third in 1884 enfranchised only 60% of the adult male population. The Labour Party in this country was founded in 1900, and universal male suffrage with voting rights for women over the age of 30 did not arrive until 1918. Full equality wasn't given to women until 1928. So when did social rights principally begin to emerge into the international discourse of human rights? About 10 years later. But it was in 1941 that Franklin Delano Roosevelt's State of the Union Address to Congress gave freedom from want as a basic human freedom. In 1942, the American Law Institute, an institute concerned with all of law and not just human rights, convened a committee of 24 persons from around the world to, quote, ascertain if they could agree on rights essential to the freedom of the individual, and if so, to frame a statement of such rights. Well, that statement included 15 articles, included the right to education, to work, to favorable conditions to work, food and housing, and social security. Now, that statement was an important precursor to the Universal Declaration on Human Rights in 1948, which also contained a set of social rights. In short, then, my claim is this. Social rights were deemed human rights around the time when the most powerful nations in the world first properly became democratic, and the first time that the international community sought to say what human rights really are. Most international conventions these days on human rights have several articles on social rights, most notably the International <coughs> Convention on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, but also the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, on the Rights of the Child, and the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Now, throughout all this political activity in the second half of the 20th century, mainstream political philosophy paid scant attention to the idea of social rights, and to human rights, for that matter. It rather addressed these questions in terms of liberty and distributive justice. At its most basic level, human rights are said to be moral, not necessarily legal. Entitlements held by all people in virtue of their humanity against governments, and which protect the essential minimum conditions required for an autonomous, or a dignified life in today's circumstances. They have a special urgency or an importance about them. And this is a problem, for instance, with Joseph Raz's interest theory of rights, for those of you who do jurisprudence. What concepts, then, do guide us in identifying what these essential and minimal and urgent conditions are? Well, some use the idea of personal autonomy or moral agency, people such as John Rawls, to some extent Joseph Raz, John James Griffin, and Dr. Kai Muller, not least among them, well, perhaps, at this stage. <laughs> but not for long, I'm sure. <coughs> this is also sometimes expressed as capabilities by Amartya Sen, whose new book, The Idea of Justice, is definitely worth reading. Or functionings by Martha Nussbaum, an outstanding political philosopher. Others use the idea of dignity or equality, like equal respect and concern. That's the position of Ronald Dworkin. And others still use a notion of the common good, like John Finnis or Joseph Raz. In many nations, it's believed that people possess these rights in virtue of divine providence. At a conference of international philosophers convened by UNESCO in 1950, one person quipped that, quote, we all agree on what human rights are on condition you don't ask us why. Let me be brief then. Virtually all philosophical accounts of human rights now agree that social rights are human rights. You can see Amartya Sen, or James Nichol, or James Griffin, John Tassiulas, or Rawls. The reasons in all cases are clear. 
A social minimum is essential for framing and realizing a life plan for autonomy, and it's essential for a life of modest dignity and independence from the whim of others. There is, however, one significant conceptual issue about social rights that I'd like to address. It's what I call the right-duty mismatch. Others like Onaro and Neil have called it the institutionalization or the feasibility critique. Here's the nub of the problem. Imagine I live in a country where there's no health service infrastructure at all. The International Covenant says I have a right to health care. How can I have a right to something that I'm not even entitled in principle to demand right away? When we think of the freedom of torture, from torture, big difference there. You can understand why I get confused at the present time. When we think of the freedom from torture, we mean that you can at once demand the immediate cessation of the wrong. That is what we think of as the paradigm human rights claim. And for this reason, Joel Feinberg, a philosopher, referred to social rights obligations as, quote, manifesto rights, and others call them goal-like rights. They think the implication may be, Feinberg didn't hold this view, but some do, that these rights are not full rights. But these are not the paradigm situation, and all we need to do is vary the facts slightly, and I'll do so by talking about probably the most important case in U.S. constitutional law, the Brown v. Board of Education case. In that case in 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court declared segregated schooling facilities in America to be a violation of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. But only a century earlier, or before that case, over 90% of America's black population was enslaved, a staggering figure of nearly 4 million souls in a nation of under 30 million. Despite the Civil War and Emancipation Proclamation, over the following 100 years, African Americans were denied access to electoral influence first by thuggish street violence, and then by the legal use of poll taxes and literacy tests. After the uprising of Nat Turner in 1831, education of slaves was widely made illegal. The Supreme Court endorsed the separate but equal doctrine in 1896 in Plessy v. Ferguson, and this enforced laws that required separate facilities for blacks and whites throughout the South with criminal sanctions. Always separate, never equal. Now, When the Supreme Court declared in Brown that all that infrastructure was to be swept away under the banner of equality, where this was obviously unattainable for some years, would it have been a conceptual mistake to say that African Americans enjoyed a constitutional right to desegregated facilities? Or would it be true to say so, but add that under the circumstances, the state's duty was to act with all deliberate speed to implement those rights? The Supreme Court opted for the latter view in Brown II in 1955. African Americans had that right, but the duties imposed on the state were to do what they could do, a feat that did in fact take an additional decade. And how about torture? I once spoke to a police officer in Sri Lanka who told me candidly that torture was an ingrained part of policing in that nation, given its civil war and other strife, and that it would be impossible to get rid of it. Does the fact that one cannot eliminate torture overnight in Sri Lanka or on Guantanamo Bay mean that it's conceptually wrong to say that people there have a human right not to be tortured? Think about homosexuality in Iran or Uganda, women's rights in Saudi Arabia, or pay equity in Britain and Germany. The answer is clear. Human rights claims are statements about what all people are morally entitled to in a well-ordered society, and a state's duties to secure those rights will to some extent be contingent upon prevailing circumstances. But this is precisely how social rights obligations are presented in the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, as well as in the Constitution of South Africa. Part 3 of the Covenant sets out the substantive social rights in declaratory fashion. They say states, parties, 
recognize the right to education. That's in part three. Part two says states' parties are obliged to take all appropriate steps to the maximum of available resources to realize progressively those recognized rights. So we can see that in both theory and international legal practice, social rights are definitely human rights. The next question is, should legal enforcement be viewed as one of these appropriate steps that should be used to give effect to them? That's what moves me on to the second part of my presentation, social rights and judicial politics. One always starts on the defensive back foot in a debate about the legalization of social rights. Conservatives hate the idea because of the risk of judicial profligacy. And some progressives hate it because they think judges tend to be more conservative than the bodies they review. And both critics become unlikely bedfellows in claiming that the unaccountable will engage in the unspeakable, judicial politics. Now this view is reflected in the Labour government's current Green Paper on a Bill of Rights, which says that resource allocation is not suitable for judicial review and must be reserved for the democratic branches. So what do I mean by judicial politics, and what do others mean? Well, bad arguments for the claim that social rights would involve judicial politics include claims that provisions are too vague or that positive obligations are unenforceable. Now, these flatly contradict the legal order that exists already. So my response is to consult a law book or take a look at cases like Limbuela and Afrijeva and others that I'm sure many people here haven't heard of because there are judicial review cases here. Now, the better arguments, and there are good arguments against social rights, are that judges lack the requisite expertise and that there's a problem of democratic legitimacy on the court. My view is that these arguments don't justify the non-justiciability doctrine. They don't justify keeping courts away from adjudicating social rights. But what they do do is raise points that are sufficiently important that they should be incorporated as principles within a theory of social rights adjudication of the type I want to offer. So let me be clear about what I am offering. What I envisage is a Bill of Constitutional Social Rights, just like the familiar Bills of Rights I'm sure many of you know of. These are rights that would affect the development of the common law, they would inform statutory interpretation, and they would provide new freestanding remedies for violations of social rights. There's a lot to justify there, so let me move on to the expertise claim. The claim here basically is that resource allocation decisions require the input of many parties who have professionally acquired technical knowledge or experience-based intuitive understanding, or both. They include experts in scientific topics like medicine, managerial expertise, or frontline expertise like social workers or police officers who can understand credibility and how proposals will work, or workability, and those at more senior levels who can form committees and boards. Resource allocation decisions require splitting a huge budget between countless interested parties. Legislatures are typically considered ideal for doing that kind of thing. And bureaucracy is ideal because it can structure a complex program and it can change it around. It can be flexible and it can call in diverse types of experts. Now, it would be absurd to deny any of this, and no one does. The engine of social rights in this country, as in most, is found in the post-war consensus that led to the NHS Act of 1948, the Education Act, and the National Assistance Act of 1948, and the various housing acts. That's not denied. These claims to the sanctity of expertise, however, contain an element of alarmism that runs like this. Courts don't know how to build schools, and they don't know how to run hospitals. Therefore, no social rights. Well, that's alarmist because it overstates what the courts are actually being asked to do. It presents a false binary choice. 
We advocates are proposing to give them jurisdiction to review particular decisions taken within a complex statutory and factual matrix. Their remedies would require other bodies to do the micro and the macro management. This is how the cases, for the most part in South Africa, have evolved. We don't ask courts to manage the terrorism problem or run our prisons under the Human Rights Act, and neither would they run the health system under a Bill of Social Rights. Another response to this expertise objection is that it would prove too much, and therefore it reduces to absurdity. Judges are rarely as informed as the bodies they review are. This is true in criminal procedure with police, the conduct of the revenue and customs and tax law, decisions about fairness by employment tribunals, and decisions of the Mental Health Review Tribunal, which review those decisions of doctors and social workers. And don't forget, judges and juries routinely reject expert testimony, and public law gives judges in this country nothing less than the power to say what is procedurally fair, reasonable, proportionate, and legitimate. And the judges in this country tend to be more deferential than those in many others. We accept the need for accountability here, and we accept the role of education in providing it. I call this an expertise accountability trade-off. These trade-offs are pervasive in public and in private law. It's the price paid for life under the rule of law. Now, the notion of this kind of trade-off gets the judge's foot in the door, but expertise remains crucial as a ground of judicial deference. The role of this concept in justifying the expansion of the welfare state in the early to mid-20th century is enormous. That expansion was attacked largely by lawyers and judges as an unconstitutional, quote, fourth branch of government in the U.S. and as a form of new despotism in the U.K. The concept of expertise has been an ally rather than an, an enemy of social rights against those kinds of judicial attitudes. So how can we give the idea the proper weight it deserves? Well, first, I think we can analyze expertise in terms of types and then examine the strengths and the weaknesses of these types. So one example of a type of expertise is managerial expertise, which is different than what a doctor does, for instance. The problem with that is that it's liable to political influence, and political influence can cancel out managerial expertise. With collective professional expertise, by contrast, like the National Institute on Clinical Excellence or the Environment Agency, that is entitled to the highest degree of deference, in my view, because it collects the views of many experts. It's not just like one doctor or one manager or even a minister. Second, there are identifiable failures of expertise when you know the expertise argument just doesn't work. One example of this is when the bureaucracy is not being consistent with its own position. It's treating different people in different ways. Or it's giving a justification that it doesn't use in another case. Another is when the position it takes contradicts a substantial majority of scientific or social science opinion on a relevant issue. Now, the, is the issue of social science evidence in law is a very troubling one, and if you're interested in knowing more on it, you can ask me about that, and I'll talk about it during the discussion. More easily and simply, expertise will justify a few rules of thumb in judging. Decisions should be on narrow grounds and localized so that the repercussions are more knowable when the legal issue is broad, courts should opt for more procedural remedies, such as requiring plans of action or allowing novel participation rights. This maintains flexibility to adjust to the unforeseen. And for the same reason, stare decisis should be applied less strictly in these cases. If problems emerge, legal categories should be revisited. I actually have the view that stare decisis should always be applied quite flexibly. And I believe Neil Duxbury, an outstanding scholar at your law school, I believe argues the same in a recent book he's published.
If these rules were adopted, I think the expertise accountability trade-offs within social rights would be within the familiar bounds that we know of in public law. So let's, let me move on to the democratic legitimacy claim. The government's position in the Green Paper is that resource allocation decisions are on democratic grounds for legislatures and government to make, not courts. Now that position is totally inconsistent with its advocacy of judicial review for other rights. There's no reason given why resource allocation should be singled out that way. So the stronger argument against the democratic legitimacy of adjudication is those that are put by those who challenge the legitimacy of all judicial review of legislation. And I'm going to look at two people who take this view. The first is John Griffith, the great professor of public law at the LSE, who argued in his 1977 Shorley Lecture, The Political Constitution, that rights claims in the European Convention look like statements of political conflict posing as a resolution of it. Now, Griffith here evokes the tradition of skepticism in public law about the objectivity of judicial decision-making. This tradition, which existed in America since the 19th century and flourished through legal realism, critical legal studies, and law and economics there, and through functionalism and political constitutionalism here, argues that judicial policy preferences play a key role in shaping the outcome of cases. Since judges don't just apply the law, their political pedigree is relevant, and on that score, they fare terribly. We all know about the claims about elitist judges, but let's just take a, a short look at the, some statistics here. On the Supreme Court, of 12 judges, there's one woman. That's an 8% rate. Is that just a problem with the age of the judges? Civil Division of the Court of Appeal, three of 42 judges are women. That's 7%. Since 2005, 30 Lord Justices of Appeal have been appointed to that court, two of which were women. On the High Court, Administrative Court, it's four of 47. The entire Queen's Bench Division, that's the High Court, seven of 72, roughly 10%. In the House of Commons, by contrast, roughly 20% of MPs are women. And let's not even talk about ethnicity. Of all those judges, not a single ethnic minority could I discern by name alone. Social rights might, in Griffith's view, throw the door open much more widely and in the area of social policy, and he would therefore be against it, I believe. My reply to him is that no rights advocate, not even Ronald Dworkin, believes that judges don't use their moral beliefs in judging. Those who want judicially protected rights expect that the regime of interpretation judges must use will constrain and shape how those values are applied in cases in more or less predictable ways. We chose the Human Rights Act under exactly that understanding, and that's also been the experience, I believe, in Canada since 1982, and largely here. And of course, we largely adopted an existing legal regime here, which was that of the European Convention. Now, as a matter of process, not just outcomes, but is the process wrong? For the same reason we wouldn't want to have a dictatorship here if it brought us great consequences. What about the process of judicial review? Well, in my view, to choose to resolve rights disputes in courts is in principle no different than to choose to resolve important maladministration claims with an ombudsman, something I doubt Griffith supposes. In practice, looking at the consequences, the record under the Human Rights Act has been relatively good, if slightly modest. Griffith's Politics of the Judiciary tells a different story. This is his great book that's for popular reading, and it is a great book. But it's a different story about a different age. Judging has changed. And anyway, if the problem is with the judiciary, then shouldn't the first solution be to reform it? Even the judges agree with that. Is it possible? Some statistics from Canada and the U.S. Ontario Court of Appeal, there are 23 judges, 8 are women. That's 35%. On the Supreme Court, it's 4 of 9 and in the U.S., the rate of representation on the federal bench 
is 28%. Change is possible. The philosopher Jeremy Waldron, the second person I want to discuss, is a firm believer in social rights as human rights, but he presents a similar but more theoretical argument to that given by Griffith. The argument in his important book, Law and Disagreement, in 1999, is roughly as follows. First, and this argument applies to judicial review of all legislation, he means to attack the U.S. Bill of Rights and the type of system that prevails in, in many countries, Germany, not, not that in France, though. First premise, both courts and legislatures reasonably disagree about the meaning of vague constitutional rights provisions. Second, both decide by a majority decision procedure. Third, moral objectivity is irrelevant to the procedure because neither institution enjoys privileged access to moral truth. Fourth, and this is critical, legislatures at least give equal respect to individuals and their right of self-government because they give equal potential decisiveness to each person's opinion because they're represented there. Each person has an equal chance to affect the outcome of the decision about what those rights mean. That's the point he wants to make. And therefore, it respects the right of self-government. Courts do none of this. Therefore, there should be no judicial review of legislation. That's his argument. This argument, as I said, is an attack on the judicial review of all legislation. But it fails. One reason is that the argument about giving equal weight to each person's view can only be relevant and not conclusive. If it could be conclusive, then we'd be forced to prefer direct democracy over representative democracy, where it was an available option. And with voter proposition initiatives in California and other U.S. states, which have overturned court cases on issues like gay marriage, and referenda on the permissibility of mosques in Switzerland, this is hardly a fantastical threat. Most people believe representative democracy on rights and many other issues because it brings deliberative and other consequential advantages, such as, for instance, the cool-headed consideration of evidence and a modicum of public reason. Those same types of arguments about how these decisions are made are used to justify judicial review. Namely, the nature of public reasoning on a court, the way in which arguments are presented, evidence considered, how issues are disaggregated from one another rather than the, the one shot does it at the election time, and notably the, pow- the power of a real veto over the interests or arguments of others. I have to wonder as well how Walden would justify consociationalism of the sort that's found in Northern Ireland. I justify it as do those in Stormont, peace and fairness. Another reason, in Waldron, another reason Waldron's argument fails is that it doesn't have a good answer to the problem of discrete and insular minorities. What about those groups that are marginalized in the legislature? In his later essay, The Core of the Case Against Judicial Review, he does have a discussion of the problem of minorities, but it's inconclusive, and ultimately he admits if there were a persistent problem with discrete and insular <coughs> minorities, his argument against the case for judicial review does not go through. But this phrase, discrete and insular minorities, was the platform on which John Hart Ely built a constitutional theory that aimed to explain the entire Constitution of the United States in the book Democracy and Distrust. Ely thought protection of groups such as African Americans, homosexuals, criminal defendants, religious minorities, and many others was at the core of the Constitution, not at its periphery. And I believe it should be at the core of the court's role in protecting social rights. And as a matter of empirical fact, and I can provide you the evidence for this, nearly all successful Section 4 cases, Section 4 is the remedy that you have under the Human Rights Act when the court declares that a piece of legislation is incompatible with the European Convention. It's the closest thing in the British legal order to a court striking down a law. 
All the successful cases under Section 4 have been obtained by claimants from discrete and insular minorities, all bar one or two. Waldron's argument does, however, stand for one very important lasting thing, the dignity of legislation. Legislation is important, and the settled findings of legislatures on how to resolve a social problem are entitled to a great amount of respect as a matter of equal respect for persons and the idea of self-government. So how can we show that respect? I engage this issue in some detail elsewhere, but here are my basic conclusions. Judges should show greater judicial deference to statutes that address human rights issues squarely, those where there's been a significant public concern or outrage with the issue, and especially those where the claimant is from a group that is not particularly vulnerable to majoritarian bias or neglect. So if you're not from a minority group, I'm saying in the social rights case, you probably shouldn't have a successful remedy to strike down a statute. There are exceptions. However, courts should show greater scrutiny, on the other hand, where there's an absence of a clear legislative focus on the rights issue that's at stake, where the legislation was, for instance, rushed through Parliament, and especially where the claimant comes from a group that's particularly vulnerable to majoritarian bias or neglect. And finally, democratic legitimacy is relevant to settling on an appropriate remedy, and this requirement is totally absent from John Hart Ely's discussion in Democracy and Distrust. It should be a remedy that seeks to engage with the legislative process by leaving the bulk of the policymaking to that forum. This is precisely what the courts have done under Section 4 in cases like Bellinger and Bellinger. Now, these principles I've just offered can be quite complex, so much so that we could forgive a judge for thinking that this is all a bit like what Oscar Wilde is reputed to have said about socialism, a nice idea, but one that takes too many evenings. Can we not just have it all delivered to us in one small package, one core idea? Well, here's my best shot. Incrementalism. The idea of incrementalism is that judges should take jurisdiction over social rights disputes, but proceed to expand the law only in small steps. The technique is experimental. The court gives a ruling on narrow grounds, it waits for feedback, and then reconsiders its position. The techniques for incrementalism, the sort of nuts and bolts of how judges would decide cases, would include the following. Particularization, or deciding on narrow grounds, not sweeping, Using vague legal standards, like with all deliberate speed, that kind of vague standard gives a lot of latitude to the government in having to respond. What is with all deliberate speed? Well, I don't know. Let's talk and negotiate about it. That kind of vagueness can actually be good at allowing different institutions in government, the court, and so on, to accommodate one another. Another is to prefer common law to constitutional remedies because I'm concerned with the problem of inflexibility. When you declare something as a right, then you can't just change your mind the next day. But if you say that this, this action breaches the principle of judicial review, then the legislature can still go ahead and decide to legislate. So preference for administrative law-type remedies can be good in preserving flexibility. It's not always perfect, but it can be good. The overriding assumption of this method of incrementalism is that political institutions are in good faith about implementing their constitutional obligations. In Britain's political constitution, I think this assumption is warranted. And this is why I think in America and in India, structural injunctions are used more widely. This is something that cannot be compared, or perhaps where this uh, condition doesn't always hold. Now, I think this is, in fact, how most judicial decision-making does proceed, even under the Human Rights Act, incrementally, that is. 
and it's largely how it's proceeded in South Africa during the first 15 years of constitutional social rights adjudication. Excuse me. But it, it is important to be clear about this role in respect of social rights for one very good reason. There's a common argument used by social rights advocates that runs like this. Social rights are just like civil rights because courts have ordered the conduct of inquiries into death or the provision of police services or sometimes they've even ordered the building of a courthouse or the extension of a prison. So there's no difference in principle. Well, is this true? Is, is it the case that social rights are just like civil rights because from time to time the courts will order that a court be opened or something? Let's get some figures on the table to compare notes here. These are from 2008. The Home Office budget, which includes policing in that year, was £9.6 billion. The benefits budget of the Department of Work and Pensions was $137 billion. Ministry of Justice, $9.4 billion. Department of Health, $105 billion. Schools, $60 billion. Universities, $20 billion. Communities and local government, which includes housing, $34 billion. So let's cut to the chase. Spending on health, education, housing, and social security represented £384 billion, which was 65% of the overall budget. Spending on prisons, policing, and the justice system was $20 billion, about 3%. Now, of course, the Human Rights Act does already apply to some of these other institutions in an important way. It's had a very important impact on mental health and homelessness, for instance. But this raises some frightening systemic risks. Social rights jurisdiction can look like a specter on this view. Many more points of destabilization can be seen if the courts are feeling generous. I call this the problem of the runaway horse. People think social rights jurisdiction might be letting loose a runaway horse. But for that problem, I think incrementalism provides the appropriate remedy. It would take off the table large-scale reforms like increasing minimum wages, like ordering the building of hospitals, like declaring a large category of new claimants for benefits. The idea of incrementalism can be used in a fairly predictable, almost intuitive way by judges, and it has a respectable, conceptual, and empirical basis. For this reason, the idea is potent and necessary. It's the appropriate bridle for the fear of any runaway horse of social rights adjudication. Let me move on to a more constructive approach. I want to shift my weight from the back foot forwards to tell you a bit about what I think social rights can offer. What do they bring to the table? And why aren't other accountability alternatives like ombudsmen, tribunals, internal audits, or parliamentary committees sufficient? Well, first, they bring the court's constitutional authority to the resolution of disputes. The court can review legislation and give judgment in ways that command the respect of the public and the immediate attention of other branches of government. And they bring enforceable remedies, not to be treated lightly. Second, given a relatively decent legal aid system, as I think exists here, although it's been under threat recently, the court can genuinely be a mode of participation for excluded groups. Now, it's true that campaigning organizations like Liberty and Justice, for instance, can participate in the legislative process quite effectively. But ordinary disadvantaged claimants like travelers, which is sometimes referred to as gypsies, prisoners, the homeless, and refugees, they don't participate in those committees. And even if they could, they don't have any coercive rights to lay on the table. Fourth, and what I think is most important, I think I skipped my third, but I'll get to that after the fourth. The entire political and administrative system magically begins to take rights a lot more seriously when you see a judge's gavel looming in the background. I urge everyone who's interested in this topic, or anyone I should say, 
to consult the Human Rights Inquiry Report of the, Quali- the Equality and Human Rights Commission, which was released in June 2009. It's shown that the Human Rights Act has made a very substantial positive impact on the delivery of public services in Britain, and that most government bodies have this positive view of it. Now, regulatory inspection bodies, such as the Mental Health Act Commission, the Inspectorate for Prisons, Independent Police Complaints Commission, Commission for Social Care Inspection, and the Audit Commission have incorporated human rights into their inspection work. They ask themselves whether the human rights are being respected. That's an important change. And what's very interesting about Britain is that the substantive legal obligations, at least in international law, are exactly the same. The Human Rights Act provided a remedy for violation of the European Convention in British law. So the sometimes this debate is presented as one where the commitment to rights can be undertaken by these political bodies on their own without anything, any courts intervening. But this case shows that the intervention of courts can mean a lot, not just for the benefits of court orders, but because the entire system falls into gear. Enforceable rights generate what I call interinstitutional collaboration. Courts, Parliament, and the administrative system collaborate to give better protection to our fundamental values. In this case, the idea that we should make the public toleration of poverty illegal. Now, many people think that these types of arguments are misguided because they're familiar somewhat with a book by Gerald Rosenberg called The Hollow Hope. They say courts are a hollow hope for social change. It's quixotic, and if you look at important cases, including Brown v. Board of Education, you'll see that courts will not bring significant social reform. And they show how it took 10 years, and it was largely the Civil Rights Act, domestic legislation that really led to proper desegregation in the U.S. Are they a hollow hope for social change? Only for the quixotic. My claim is that they generate worthwhile change, not major structural reform. In fact, I'm advocating incremental change instead of major structural reform. And let's consider the Brown case, the uselessness of which critics think Rosenberg's book has proved. This is misguided. The leading authority now on Brown is Michael J. Klarman's book, Here's a very brief sample of changes wrought by Brown that I combed out of Klarman. It had the effect of desegregating border state cities including Baltimore, Maryland, Wilmington, Delaware, Kansas City, St. Louis, Missouri, Louisville, Kentucky, and Oklahoma. Even openly recalcitrant judges invalidated segregation laws out of fidelity to the Supreme Court's decision. It was a direct cause of passing the Civil Rights Act of 1957, not of 64, which is the very significant one. Though that was ineffective in some respects, it created the Commission on Civil Rights and the Civil Rights Division of the Attorney General's Office. One black newspaper proclaimed the decision to be the greatest victory for the Negro people since the Emancipation Proclamation, which I'm quoting. Now say what you want about the snail's pace of desegregation. These changes to me definitively show that the legal game was worth the candle. I will also quote here at some length, and I'll apologize for that beforehand, but this is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who's always worth listening to at some length. He's addressing this claim that activists should not try to make change in the courts, that they should rather try to use political means. One factor that helps to explain why the Negro nationally did not embrace the nonviolent ethic immediately after the Montgomery bus boycott was a fallacious and dangerously divisive philosophy spread by those who were either dishonest or ignorant. This philosophy held that nonviolent direct action was a substitute for all other approaches, attacking especially the legal methods that up to the mid-50s, which was when Brown was decided, had brought such important decisive court rulings and laws into being. The best way to defeat an army is to divide it. 
Negroes as well as whites have compounded confusion and distorted reality by the de defending the legal approach and condemning direct action, or by defending direct action and condemning a legal approach. Direct action is not a substitute for work in the courts and halls of government. Bringing about a passage of a new and broad law by a city council, state legislature, or Congress, or pleading cases before the courts of the land, does not eliminate the necessity for bringing about the mass dramatization of injustice in front of a city hall. Indeed, direct action and legal action complement one another. When skillfully employed, each becomes more effective. The chronology of the sit-ins confirms this observation. Spontaneously born but guided by the theory of nonviolent resistance, the lunch counter sit-ins accomplished integration in hundreds of communities at the swiftest rate of change in the civil rights movement. Yet many communities su successfully resisted lunch counter desegregation and pressed charges against the demonstrators. It was correct and effective that demonstrators should fill the jails, but it was necessary that these foot soldiers for freedom not be deserted to languish there or pay excessive penalties for their devotion. Indeed, by the creative use of the law, it was possible to prove that the officials combating the demonstrations were using the power of the police state to deny the Negro the equal protection of the law. This brought many of the cases squarely under the jurisdiction of the 14th Amendment. As a consequence of combining direct and legal action, far-reaching precedents were established, which served in turn to extend the areas of desegregation. Now, if the claim is that, Rosen, that Brown v. Board of Education didn't have an important effect, here is Martin Luther King, who engineered much of the civil rights movement, explaining precisely how legal action and political protests work hand-in-hand -hand to protect rights. That's the common-sense view of any activist. And if you look at groups like Liberty and Justice and so on, they are, they are at parliamentary committee hearings, they are campaigning, indi uh, lobbying individual parliamentarians, and they're also advocating for things such as adopting a Bill of Social Rights. Let me move on then to the very final thing I want to talk about, something I'm sure brings you some relief. It's what taking social rights seriously might mean in the UK legal order. Now, can I just ask, how many people here have studied UK public law? Okay, well then I'll be brief. <laughs> the first, I'm trying to, part of the way that you can understand how the changes can be brought about is that they can affect the law in three areas, and I'm borrowing here a bit from Ronald Dworkin, who in his book Law's Empire discusses how his theory works under the common law, under statutory interpretation, and under the interpretation of the Constitution. I think a Bill of Social Rights can have influence in each of these three areas. Let's start with the common law, and I will be brief here. At present, if you want to judicially review administrative action here, and you want to review the reasonableness of the action, the standard that's used is very deferential. But it was decided in the mid-90s in a case, ex parte Smith, that that deferential standard of review wasn't enough for human rights claims. This is before the Human Rights Act was in, in power. So they said in human rights cases, i.e. where there's a freedom of expression at issue or so, we're going to use anxious or heightened scrutiny. So they made the judicial review standard more potent. That standard is still in effect. You'd think it's moribund now that we have the Human Rights Act, but in fact it is still used in some cases. So in the Banku case, the issue is whether the government could evict the, or not return the Chagos Islanders to an island in the, in the Pacific. And they said that the right of abode is like a fundamental right. So they used this category to address new human rights claims. I think we could treat social rights with heightened scrutiny. This would be a technique to prefer a common law remedy over a constitutional law remedy. 
the category is is there and it can be used and it would have a real it make a real difference and in fact that is the category used in some healthcare allocation cases how about the rest of the common law treating social rights as common law rights is not limited to judicial review we have other areas of common law such as regulation employment relations landlord and tenant law the law of tort and contract and the provision of basic care services here the law could be interpreted consistently with social rights to give better protection to citizens in cases of doubt statutory interpretation there's a case in the 80s called ex parte poolhofer when lord brightman held that where the meaning of the word accommodation was concerned in a statute there are no rules he said basically the authority can decide what it wants what that word is going to mean and lord hoffman also one of the most prominent judges in the house of lords then um has said and i quote when a case appears to involve no more than a construction of a statute or interpretation of a common law rule the courts are very circumspect about giving an answer that materially affects the distribution of resources this is actually as a matter of fact somewhat false and in some articles i've shown how if you look at tax law where the the tune of the judicial heartstrings is much different when it's plucked by taxpayers who are getting taxed they will actually give decisions that have very serious repercussions for finance and if you want to see a recent example there was the case of sempermetals metals and inland revenue service where the court decided that complex um uh no that compound interest would be would be recoverable in restitution and not just simple interest when the government taxes someone too much now that they decided not only in a way that has a huge impact on public finances because they have to repay this money of course but the judges had to outmaneuver recent precedent in that case they had to go against or against inconclusive law commission findings which refused to suggest that it should be recoverable and they had to go against a statute that appeared to exclude that option so my claim is we can't deprive people of the protection of the rule of law because it involves some expense and what's interesting about statutory interpretation is that if they do get it wrong and there are massive financial repercussions parliament can act it's not like the poor has a massive lobby preventing parliament from acting it can affect the human rights act as well i'm not going to get into that because the cases that i discuss are quite particular and i'm sure none of you are very familiar with them but sometimes cases about interpreting certain civil rights like the right to a fair trial or uh, whether something should be considered a public authority depend a lot on a view of what the role of the state is and to have constitutional social rights you're saying quite unequivocally the role of the state is to guarantee that citizens have basic access to social services i'm going to give a few examples very briefly of what we might get with an enforceable bill of social rights and this is something like you raise the the argument in court that your right to healthcare has been violated in this case it's not via some something else it's not statutory interpretation or common law people say what difference would that make and certainly it's something i need to answer because i'm saying court should act incrementally so the question is what's going to do well the cases in south africa have led to these kinds of changes in gripum a case basically resulted in large changes to the housing code of that country and required um the government to provide plans to show that it had given serious consideration to the interests of the least well off when evicting them in the treatment action campaign case 
The court invalidated a sluggish, cautious, and unduly incremental response, it can be undue at times, to the AIDS catastrophe there, and it ordered the government to roll out a comprehensive strategy. In Moderclip, it prevented 30,000 people from being evicted. In Olivia Road occupiers, it ensured that people who are evicted for health and safety reasons are consulted meaningfully. So let's move on now to my last page, my conclusion. Let me tie the various strands together. First, social rights are human rights because they're essential to dignity and autonomy of the individual, ever more so in rich countries where the poor have become a minority in many cases. Don't let the order of these rights in international relations confuse you. They are human rights. Second, the arguments against judicial competence fail. Expertise and democracy are key arguments, and they're crucial, and they tell us how judges should use any social rights jurisdiction they get. But they don't justify the status quo or the position of the current government. The idea of judicial incrementalism encapsulates the appropriate role of judges in social rights adjudication. Third, social rights in the Constitution can bring about real beneficial change. Not only that spurred on by court orders, which would be light, but by, by through the process of interinstitutional collaboration that it generates. Courts are allies rather than enemies of the other institutions on this view. Let me conclude finally by saying that a constitution is meant to be an expression of society's most cherished values and commitments. I think that the true measure of the dignity of a society is how well it treats its least well-off. Constitutionalizing a commitment to solidarity with those at the margins of society should be our highest priority, not dismissed as a pipe dream. Thank you very much.